The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 15th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In the news, a horse in Iowa made a dashing bolt out of his barn to warn neighbors that his owner had been using undocumented grooms. The owner attempted to secure the horse's enclosure, but it was too late. The news was out. I know because I read that news story on Facebook. All right, I will admit, it didn't happen. It was fake news. But in actual closing the barn door after the horse makes a run for it news, Google and Facebook have agreed to crack down on fake news sites by robbing them of ad dollars. The two internet behemoths, they're the second and seventh largest companies of any size in the U.S., they're acknowledging that this phenomenon is a problem. It's not enough to turn back time. And who knows how persuasive fake news was to voters, but Google and Facebook are acting on this because there is a backlash. But as with a racehorse, going to the lash is usually of no use after the race has been run. Now, Facebook's crackdown on fake news will not include forcing you to post a picture from the last five years or taken from an actual angle that an actual person might ever adopt while gazing upon you. But in all seriousness, the ad crackdown will only go so far. Presumably, many purveyors of fake news do not have as their motive the profit motive. Instead, they have the influence motive. Also, Google search results can be easily gamed. And Google and Facebook execs say it's really hard to figure out what's fake news and what isn't. Here's a hint. If it quotes Donald Trump publicist John Miller, oh no, that actually was real news, just a fake guy. But I want to point out a positive in all this, which my inimical style, I will spin into a much worse negative. But here we go. At least these two giant companies with no statutory responsibility to strive toward the public good are doing something to reform a flaw that could hurt democracy. Of course, Facebook and Google executives aren't in their jobs because of fake news, whereas many of the politicians who are charged with reforming voting actually are in their positions because of it. But now as I consider the questions of society and culture, it does strike me that there is a rift. Look at the late night shows. Our truth-telling court jesters, Colbert, Kimmel, Myers, Oliver, B, Marr, they're all vocally opposed to Donald Trump. Corden and Fallon, they gently forego much content. But no one is addressing the near majority of Americans who back Donald Trump. I don't know that this is a problem, but it's certainly a thing. It's a thing that I will talk to New York Times columnist Ross Douthit about. He calls it the Samantha Bee problem. Ross Douthit is a columnist for the New York Times, along with Raihan Salam. He is the author of Grand New Party, which was a book eight years ago at the dawn of the Obama presidency, imagining where Republicans would go. We've had Raihan on a lot on the gist. He's uh, he's a policy wonk, and he has all sorts of prescriptions for this amount of tax and that amount of subsidy. His partner in reimagining Republicanism, Ross, from my readings, he he speaks more to the cultural side of things. Am I hello, Ross? Am I getting your uh, the breakdown between your you and Raihan about right? Well, it's it's definitely true that Raihan taught me about. 78% of what I know about domestic policy. I yeah, think yeah. I think at the very least that's fair to say. 
So you'll be talking about, I mean, you're frequently talking about the culture uh, writ large, the culture of conservatism. So let's start there. Has Donald Trump taught us anything that we didn't know or that we thought we knew, but it's really more true than we did about where either American culture is or the right is? Um, Yeah, Donald Trump has taught us a lot of things. (laughs) It's been not just a teachable moment, but a teachable, I guess, a year and a half since he came down that escalator. I mean, I suppose to to start with Republicans, Trump's taught us something that I think Raihan and I at least argued that we knew, um, but the Republican Party as an institution didn't completely know, which is the extent to which there's a large segment of Republican voters that are not committed deeply, madly, truly to conservative orthodoxy on public policy, as it's been defined for the last 10, 20, 30 years. When Raihan and I were writing our book, which you mentioned, this was eight years ago, and part of our argument was that especially middle class and working class voters, Republicans and independents who lean Republican, tend to look at the existing Republican policy agenda, um, upper bracket tax cuts, deregulation, and so on, and see a lack of ideas that speaks to their anxieties and concerns. Um, And I think that created part of the opening through which Trump drove his train, basically, in the primary, that he was willing to come out and say all kinds of heterodox things about everything from protecting Social Security and Medicare to building gaudy new infrastructure. But the reality was that a chunk, a sizable chunk of Republican primary voters didn't particularly care and they liked what they were hearing and they didn't care that it didn't comport with how the Wall Street Journal editorial page or any other sort of movement organ had defined conservatism. Why didn't the tea why didn't the Tea Party teach us that? The Tea Party was angry, the Tea Party didn't sign on to Chamber of Commerce politics. Why wasn't that message enough? Is it that the Tea Party wasn't heterodox? Uh they just kind of left those issues alone, whereas Trump took them on and said, I support Social Security, I don't want to build roads. It was there if you looked hard in certain ways at the Tea Party, right? That, you know, the, the tea, but the Tea Party was sort of successfully interpreted and channeled by conservatives in Washington, D.C. into a strictly limited government constitutionalist movement, which was indeed part of what the Tea Party was about. But part of what the Tea Party about was about, obviously, was also anxiety over immigration, anxiety, again, over things like Social Security and and Medicare, where you did see Republicans in the Tea Party era sort of running sometimes as defenders of Medicare. So there were some sort of Trumpish aspects. But what Trump did was sort of take part of the Tea Party. I mean, this is why his coalition in the primaries was interesting. It was a mix of Tea Party voters who were primarily motivated by immigration. So call that sort of his right wing constituency. And then but then he had a sort of big, more center right constituency, which was more moderate, secular, lower middle class, especially male Republicans um, who were not Tea Party types, not sort of evangelical Christian conservatives and who, again, found this sort of seemed to find his economic populism very appealing in a way that a more, again, stringent, limited government perspective wouldn't have been popular. And I also think foreign policy entered in where Trump, again, more than other Republican politicians, was willing to just flat out say the Iraq war was a disaster. The Iraq war was a huge mistake, um, you know, to sort of openly criticize the Bush administration. And there, too, you have a lot of Republican voters who had, it seemed like, been actually waiting for somebody 
to take that line and that perspective, even though it wasn't the perspective that movement orthodoxy wanted them to take. So as we talked about this miasma, this interconnectedness of grievance and rationality and people you know and how it's uh, maybe affecting you and how maybe you imagine it or maybe you see it, then we have the cultural component. You write about the cultural component a lot, which is a condescending to. I think these people, you would say, feel condescended to by uh, the culture, by you know, and not just Samantha B, which you wrote about, but, you know, everyone cracking wise during an award show. And I guess my question is, what would the corrective to that be? More country music, a different kind of performer? Um, we do live in a pretty fractured, diffuse world. So even Samantha B, like she only gets 700,000 viewers a day. That only can exist because we have 400 channels. So what would your solution to that be? I mean, I don't think there's any kind of perfect cultural solution. And I mean, I should say, I had a lot of readers of that Samantha B column who thought that I was, uh, you know, sort of condemning cultural liberal hegemony outright and so on, which obviously I'm as a conservative against cultural liberal hegemony. But my point was a, a narrower one, which is that you have had over the last five years, a very swift sort of leftward shift on social values questions, but that sort of manifest in pop culture in different ways. And that is noticeable even, you know, even if you sort of segment yourself off and only watch Duck Dynasty, right? I mean, it's noticeable that major apolitical institutions um, like the NCAA and, you know, the sort of sports institutions are in culture war battles over transgender rights and so on. Um, it's noticeable you can keep changing the channels, but it's noticeable that much of late night television has been colonized by alumni of The Daily Show and, and so on. And so in that situation, I mean, I, you know, again, this is sort of a problem for conservatives and it's a it speaks to the cultural failure of conservatives in many ways. This sort of leftward shift and this sense of a kind of left wing monoculture has happened. Right. It speaks to the failure of conservatives to effectively contest pop cultural spaces. What it means in practice is that I think a lot of people have a sense that there are new norms suddenly being enforced that they were sort of unaware of and nobody, you know, nobody had raised or discussed five or 10 years ago. And some of these norms may be good and necessary, but there isn't any obvious means of registering dissent from them. And so, you know, my, my solution for liberals is to basically be a little more small L liberal and and spend less time sort of acting as if everyone who disagrees with you on an issue that wasn't even a political issue five years ago um, should be treated as, uh, you know, as a complete bigot. I mean, it's like it's the idea that, uh, you know, when you have a debate over the religious liberty bill in Indiana, it's not just that sort of people are angry on Twitter about it, but it's that Apple intervenes, basically. It's you know, mm -hmm. this sense that sort of these non-political entities have decided that these culture war debates are over and human rights requires that the liberal position be adopted. I think that's part of what some of the backlash is reacting against, this sort of institutional weight being placed um, on the scale. But again, that is sort of, you know, is a very effective way of winning political debates. And if you believe, as obviously liberals on the left believe that there are fundamental rights at stake here, it's understandable that that style of political engagement would be appealing. 
If you were Apple, if you were Tim Cook and your only consideration, which it isn't, it's to make money, but your only consideration was to do the thing that would uh, advance your progressive view of the world. Do you think then it was a mistake to take the stance they did in Indiana? In the short run, they could align themselves with the forces of openness and uh, a pro-gay agenda. But are you saying that in the long run, you're creating a backlash that you have to deal with that might be counterproductive? Um, In that particular case, um, as much as I disagreed with Tim Cook's intervention, I think it's very likely that the backlash will be manageable, basically. So in that sense, just as sort of pure politics, I don't think the likely backlash on that issue would be strong enough to undo the gains for social liberalism that sort of corporate America's thumb on the scale is likely to win. Um, I think immigration is a more trickier issue and there the backlash has been stronger and seems likely to continue to be stronger. Very last question. What's your favorite late night TV show? I don't regularly watch any late night TV show. I watch them in, you know, the bits and pieces required (laughs) to offer cultural commentary. Um, But we have three children, five and under. So I'm not staying up for any of them. What was the last one that made you laugh? Like even in the back of a cab or wherever you saw it? Oh, I mean, I laughed. Well, is it, I don't know. Does it count if I laughed at David Pumpkins? I laughed. <laughs> it at was David S. Pumpkins. He could unite us all. I mean, that's it. Unite us all, right? That's the common culture now. Tom Hanks <laughs> as David, David S. Pumpkins. <laughs> Ross Douthit, columnist, New York Times, co-author with Raihan Salam of Grand New Party. Thank you so much, Ross. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Donald Trump was elected by two main groups. One large group were Americans who were sick and tired at every turn of being called racists. And the other large group were racists. That was the other group. Guess what? There's a pretty large overlap between those two groups. So the question is, what do we do about it? I have to tell you, Slate has been apoplectic. The only debate is how warranted the apoplexy is. As a candidate, Trump promised deportations, torture, and jailing his enemies. Should the tack now be to never let him forget those promises? Or can we possibly craft an off-ramp to steer him away from his own worst impulses? One podcast I listened to, I think it was Left, Right, and Center, asked their panelists, what's the one piece of advice you would give Donald Trump? Here's mine. Don't govern just to thrill those who voted for you. Govern to win over those who opposed you. That might work with Trump. I mean, the guy wants to be loved. Now, you might be saying, it is impossible. We need to stand firm. My Slate colleague, Michelle Goldberg, has an article, More Democrats Should Be Talking Like Harry Reid Right Now. In what Goldberg calls a perfect statement, Reid wrote, Donald Trump is a sexual predator who lost the popular vote and fueled his campaign with bigotry and hate. That's true. But if the premise is, this is the way Democrats should be talking, I'm not so sure that's the right method. Here's my thinking. Let's take as our premise what the goal should be. The goal should be to steer Trump away from brutality, harassment, capricious decision-making as regards the economy and foreign affairs, and above all, to protect those who he has essentially vowed to victimize. That's the result we want to see. The political science professor, Daryl West, lists four ways the Trump presidency could go. 
traditional Republican, popular rogue, failed president, authoritarian. Now, in that popular rogue category, West puts Huey Long, James Curley, Edwin Edwards, Buddy Cianci. I might add Marion Barry just as a tweak. Now, please note, all these guys were indeed popular. They also all served jail time, except Huey Long, who was assassinated at the age of 42. So he had his whole life ahead of him to be arrested. So roguish, though popular for a time, and failed president, big overlap there. An authoritarian, that's certainly a fail. The difference that West makes is that failed president is one who we recognized as a failure. Maybe he's undone by some sort of scandal, whereas authoritarian, effectively enough, uses the power of the state to harass his rivals, not just to enrich his associates. So how do we try to nudge Trump into that first camp, traditional Republican? Is it fierce vocal opposition? Is it olive branches? Let's check in on our president, who was in Greece today. He has always had a thoughtful answer. The question was, does he view the election of Donald Trump and other phenomena like the Brexit vote as a rejection of his worldview? So we'll play the full answer. And we're going to also play the full pause. There's about a seven second pause in which he tries to pick the right word. Here it is. I do believe, separate and apart from any particular election uh, or movement, that we are going to have to guard against a rise in a crude sort of nationalism or ethnic identity or tribalism that is built around an us and a them. And I will never apologize for saying that the future of humanity and the future of the world is going to be defined by what we have in common as opposed to those things that separate us and ultimately lead us into conflict. Nationalism. He thought about it and he chose the word nationalism. He could have said authoritarianism. He could have said fascism. And that wouldn't be inaccurate. But he says nationalism. Why? It's a little bit softer. It is less likely to invoke a defensive response. Just like yesterday, before Obama left for Europe, he used an interesting word to describe Trump. And some of his gifts that obviously allowed him to um, execute one of the biggest political upsets in history, um, you know, those are ones that hopefully uh, he will put to good use uh, on behalf of all the American people. Now, you might find a reference to Trump's gifts rich, richer than Trump, according to what we know from his taxes, unless Trump's gifts are a bottle of Trump water and non-government inspected slices of Trump steak. But what's going on is that the president is trying a tone exactly the opposite of Harry Reid's. Trump can be relied on to lash out and counterpunch, but I think the president reasons that he can be flattered and he can be maybe distracted to threaten or to cajole. It's easy to classify this as the weak or the strong response. But didn't the election teach us anything about simple binaries? It is soft power versus hard power. They're both forms of power. It's dueling godfather quotes. The Obama way. Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. And the Harry Reid way. Like when the godfather said, he's not going to forget. 
But I'm a superstitious man. And if some unlucky accident should befall him, if he should get shot in the head by a police officer, or if he should hang himself in his jail cell, or if he's struck by a bolt of lightning, then I'm going to blame some of the people in this room. And then I do not forgive. The problem with threatening vigilance is that the Godfather had legions of soldiers to send to the mattresses. The Democrats control no branches of government, and the filibuster can only do so much, and less than it used to, thanks to the parliamentary decisions of Harry Reid. If you are opposed to Trump's stated policies, you should use every tool in your kit, every arm in your arsenal, but you should also not mistake some of the less obvious weapons as mere acquiescence. And that is it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson doesn't have a Samantha B problem. She has a spelling B problem. Gesselschaft? Just producer Chris Berube has no problem with a word meaning social relations based on impersonal ties as a duty to a society or organization. But asking for the part of speech? Gesselschaft? Come on. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a bumblebee problem. The fact that there's a tuna called bumblebee. How's that supposed to move product? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has a world be free, Johnny be good, and Coco beware problem. The gist, A, B, C, always be captating, attempting to achieve applause or recognition. Umperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.